Today's guest is Christina Lennon. She was dubbed the world's best hypnotist by CBS. She is also a psychotherapist, psychologist, and practices both therapeutic and stage hypnosis. She picked up stage hypnosis later on in life. She is possibly most famous for hypnotizing Simon Cowell on Britain's Got Talent. In this episode, we cover a wide variety of topics from how a really difficult childhood led into her studying and taking up therapy herself, becoming a stage hypnotist. And then, yes, we do cover what exactly went down when she hypnotized Simon Cowell. This is a fantastic episode. I think you're really going to love it. And let me know. You can find me online at unstructuredpod.com, or you can find me on Twitter, or Instagram, or Facebook as Unstructured P. I present to you, Christina Lennon. My name is Eric Hunley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. Hey, thanks for coming on, Christina. Thank you for having me. Now, I'm really excited. I saw you first. Ironically, it wasn't your biggest appearance. I saw you first on YouTube on Mike Winnett's show, The Contrepreneur. Yes. And was just fascinated. Then I started to look everything up on you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I really, really enjoy the way you spoke to Mike and how you represent yourself as a hypnotist and the field mm-hmm. and the idea of, uh, shall we say, you're very open about the fact that there are a lot of people out there who are manipulating others. Uh, absolutely. A hundred percent. Yeah. E- well, everybody every day is manipulating all the people around them in one way or another. I guess that's true. And I've had somebody point out that you start your manipulation when you're seven years old and you cry that you don't want to go to bed. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Kids are uh, great at manipulating parents. They're, yeah, absolute masters. <laughs> now, you, though, have managed to go from a therapist, and I understand you are a, both a psychotherapist and a psychologist. And yep. I wanted to ask you the difference between the two. Um, psychology is, um, psychotherapy is, it's just the th- therapy side. We, you work in one-to-one with clients in talking therapies. So a psychotherapist will be trained in probably lots of different therapists. Mm. Um, so you have a counsellor that's just, you know, straightforward talking therapy. Then a psychotherapist is kind of, scale up from that and they might be trained in cognitive behavioral therapy gestalt therapy hypnosis lots of different tools to help a person with their issues okay so psychology is i'm gonna guess in like having a degree in psychology you're a psychologist but a Mm -hmm. psychotherapist means that you've taken on much more extra training or specialization? Yes. I mean, you don't necessarily study psychology to be a psychotherapist. You study the different methodologies, the different theories in helping people. Okay. Now, what brought you into the field? Of psychotherapy? Yeah. Or counselling? Um, years ago, I was chatting to, I'd found myself in a difficult position. I my dad died when I was very young and it had a very negative effect on me at the time. And I started to believe that I wasn't worthy of love, that I, you know, I, I, it was a difficult time. And I started asking myself damaging questions like why me, why my dad, which only gives you very 
sort of horrible answers like you're not worthy you're not lovable that kind of thing and I spoke to a friend about what I wanted to do and she said to me why don't you know what are you good at what you're bad at and she started asking me really good open questions to get me thinking Mm -hmm. and I realized I was terrible with people's emotions if somebody cried I'd just be like want to run a mile Mm. so she said why don't you start a counseling course because it'll help you with the other issues that I've been going through and it will help you overcome this you know this issue with people crying so that's kind of where my journey started is that it's funny you mentioned that it or do you have a hyper sense of empathy as in like if somebody is really upset it it affects you and that's why you kind of wanted to get away from it it's because you absorbed it yeah i think so i'm one of those people that's very easy to you know i get upset very easy i can sort of sense people's emotions quite easily um, so yeah, I suppose it's, it, I, I experience high emotions and it's like, hmm. and obviously now I don't have to deal with that and I'm comfortable with that. Um, but back then I was literally like, oh my God, I want to, you know, stroke somebody with a brush. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, I'd love to cover that. I mean, what are some tools that have helped you? And I, I actually have a little bit of the, that too. I have to just get time by myself and away from people because I, I feel like a, and with my wife, for example, she's from mm-hmm. a family that was very, I hate to say yelly, but it, it, right. they would yell at each other. It wasn't mean or anything. Just they yeah. express themselves loud. loudly. Just rah, 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 rah. my family's like that. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm from dead silence growing up mm-hmm. around just animals, very isolated. And so every, every emotion, it's like, I'm really fine tuned. I can feel currents in a room like, oh, they're yeah. doing this. They're manipulating there. They're doing, you know, I mean, I can see these things, mm-hmm. but when somebody comes at me with hard emotion, I'm just, it, it, it's intense. Yeah. So the first step is self-awareness, being aware of what's going on for you. And the next step is self-regulation and everybody's really different. So it's difficult to advise many. Um, I know with me, learning to deal with people's emotions was just about to sit and not need to do anything to just know that you, because I think that was the problem with me as I just didn't know what to do with this and it felt Mm -hmm. awkward. And now, you know, I mean, most I sort of laugh with my clients. I make most of them cry at some point. Um, But now it's just sitting there and being with the person. You don't need to hug them. You don't need to do anything. You can just sit while they cry and that's it and just being happy to do that okay so just being present i guess yeah just being present yeah now this led you into hypnosis training yeah when i was 23 i think and i was having my second child five years ago (laughs) not quite he's 20 odd now I'm not going to give my age away. Um, Yeah, so when I was pregnant with him, I realized he was going to be a huge baby and I was absolutely petrified. And somebody suggested hypnosis and, uh, and somebody in particular to help me. And it was a guy that had a stage hypnosis show and I contacted him and he gave me a session and I had, I wouldn't say a completely pain-free birth, but... It was absolutely amazing. It completely blew my mind. Being able to go to sleep in the middle of, you know, in between contractions um, and just being so calm. It was ridiculous. 
ridiculous. Interesting. And I've had a former guest on, Chase Hughes. Um, I think he said that you might have been trained by the same person, Anthony Gailey? Or? Gailey, right, yes, for speaking, yes. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. We'll, we'll circle back around, but I had a couple of questions from him too. But um, is that who trained you in hypnosis originally, or you already no. were? Oh, okay, okay. Yes. Yes, yes. I only trained with Anthony Gailey a couple of years ago. Okay. So then you were doing hypnosis as part of therapy. Yeah. Once I'd had the, I'd already started the psychotherapy route, but then once I had the hypnotherapy, I was like, wow, I have got to be able to do this. And I think I had another session to pass my test, you know, to be really calm on my test, another session to have a tooth out without painkillers. And it was like, this is amazing. So it's like, right, I'm going to do this. So I started training at university um, and did, I think it was two or three years in therapy, hypnotherapy and advanced therapeutic hypnosis. Okay. So, so it's not an eight week course that you come out a master no. hypnotist. <laughs> you can't read a book. I don't like those. <laughs> Well, no, I, I ask that because I also look at, there's a ton of hypnosis scripts and things like that, and everything feels and seems very contrived. Yeah, there's so many. I mean, you can, you can be trained as a hypnotherapist and it, I mean, it irates me that, you know, I'm I'm here with nine years qualifications mm -hmm. and then somebody does a weekend course and they're like, I'm a hypnotherapist. And then I get people going, mm, I don't believe hypnotherapy works. That's because you've had a really rubbish hypnotherapist that was probably trained over a weekend. So yeah, there's, as with anything, there's all different levels sure. of therapists. So I think you need to choose really. So you wouldn't mind more regulation in it. I would love more regulation. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Yes. Okay. Because that was my next question is how long did it take you to be proficient? Because honestly, you know, I hate to use the term contrived again, but I feel like it has to be a little awkward at first. Yeah. I mean, at first it's as with anything you feel like you're pretending. I used to hypnotize my children on a night going to bed that was my, that was where I got most of my practice every night. Mm. I would did they know them it? On, uh, um, <laughs> I think they did. Well, no, now. <laughs> but every night they'd, you know, go, I'd do different scripts and I'd make scripts of, of my own, you know, because at first you always start with somebody else's script mm -hmm. and the types of things you need to say. And then, you know, as you, go on then you start to develop your own scripts and see what works best and what you prefer and see the best results from and yeah I started with my children and it yeah I mean I was felt competent after I finished my course hypnotizing people mm -hmm. but it's really I, I would say that when I started doing stage hypnosis my competency level jumped from here to here it was a different kettle of fish altogether. It was completely different. Well, that's cool. And actually, that leads into one of uh, Chase's questions he had for you. Good. <laughs> and he'd love to ask you, what are the keys to hypnotizing someone in public who's skeptical? Do you know, there's nothing different about hearing somebody that's skeptical or isn't. So a lot of people think that there's an idea that you've got to believe in hypnosis for it to work. Mm. Mm -mm. 
You don't need to believe at all. And you don't need, you can be skeptical. And I love it when people walk on the stage and go, I'm here to see because I don't think I can be hypnotized. Da, 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 da. Definitely <laughs> not by a dog. And I just think, great, that is that is perfect. <laughs> so yeah, it's there is no actual tips to hypnotize somebody that's skeptical. As long as they are willing to follow the steps, mm-hmm. I mean, that is the key thing. If I say, look up at the ceiling, focus on one spot, and they don't do that, they're not going to get, I'm not going to get them to the end result. So I might get someone on stage that's messing about and they might, you know, with stage hypnosis, they'll be trying to wake other people up or being disruptive. You have to get rid of those people straight away because they will, it's like a bad apple, they will affect everybody else. But they don't need to believe, they just need to follow my instructions. That's all. Okay. Well, that that's interesting. I thought I thought about it because you know you talked about NLP, and mm-hmm. I probably would be poor, but not because my mind is necessarily so strong. It's because I'm too lazy and uncooperative. Yeah, it's it's literally you have to be able to concentrate, have a good imagination, and follow my instructions. That's it. You know, it's it's difficult for me to hypnotize anybody that's deaf for obviously reasons. Well, yeah. Um, you know, but other than that, everybody can, and that is hypnotized. Everyone goes through hypnotic states multiple times a day. So everybody is a prime candidate for hypnosis. Yeah. You've mentioned that, um, the theta state, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Some, somebody commented on one of the other things and said, she even says theta wrong. In the UK, we call it theta, but in America, it's theta. <laughs> well, you guys sound cool. You also say um, process, and we say process. Yeah. So, I mean. <laughs> tomato, tomato. <laughs> exactly. And I think it's cool. Um, Canadians say yeah. process, too. So yeah. you can catch out a Canadian because they're sneaky. They sound just like us. But then if they say Zed or a boat, <laughs> you can catch right. them. It's different, Yeah. <laughs> On that note, yeah, I was thinking about it because a lot of the NLP stuff or whatever, they'll be like, do you want to make money? Raise your hand. Do you want to do this? Is that essentially um, early steps into a group hypnosis type scenario? Absolutely. hundred percent. When I first get people up on stage, I get them to do something really funny. I get them to stand, sit, stand, sit. Before I've done anything, I just say, sit down, make sure they're not sat next to a friend because I don't want them to chat or anything. I want Ah. to isolate them. Um, But then I just get them to stand, sit, stand, sit. I'm just getting them to conform. Mm -hmm. And the more they conform, you start with something small. And the whole structure of the show, we start the show with doing small things like it might be to sort of lie down, sit up, to cuddle the person next to them, sit up. And I get them doing small things until by the end or the middle of the show, they think I'm invisible. <laughs> but it's 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 the thin end of a wedge. We have okay. to get them conforming. So they don't know where... It, there's a process by which at some point I become in control. Mm. And it ha- it's different with everybody, but I can sort of go, right, I've got that one. And that one, and then you know a few more processes because I've told them they've got to do what I say. Right. So they're up there voluntarily doing what I say, and at one point you go, "Yep, they're under my control now. Now that one's under my control. Now that one is." And as time goes on, you get more and more. Okay, so it's almost like a slippery slope type of thing. I I can't help. I have a weird imagination, but I'm like, how many times do people get into trouble because they do one little thing? And then, exactly. and then they go, oh, shoot. And then they have to do something to cover that one little thing. And then it suddenly spirals into something completely out of control. Exactly. 
And and talking about Darren Brown, he's he's done TV shows and he shows how people, first of all, he picks a prime candidate and then he gets them to do something ever so small. Mm-hmm. By the end of it, one of his TV shows, he had somebody shooting someone. Right. Now, you know, he didn't know there were blanks in the gun. He thought he was actually shooting someone. Which but is scary. He had to gradually, yeah. Get, get bigger and bigger things, get him into a situation where he felt he couldn't get out of. And it's exactly the same thing. Yeah. On that note, back to Chase Hughes. He's going to love this. This is like, you know, great <laughs> press room. Chase. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's got a lot of great material. He kind of crosses a lot of areas though. So I love having right. a reference point. Plus I can pitch my own previous episodes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he writes in his book, The Ellipsis Manual, and ultimately it goes into building a Manchurian candidate. Oh, what? Sorry. A Manchurian candidate. Manchurian. It was based on a, a movie and a book of the same name. And then right. got remade. Essentially turning somebody into a hitman or an assassin. Right. Yep. Yep. And... Darren Brown, I think, sort of um, showed that that could be done. And I'm hearing from you that, yes, it is possible. Yeah, 100%. And I know there's there's people I get on stage and I think I can make them do anything, anything. People <laughs> have been in trouble. Doctors have been in trouble for messing with patients under hypnosis because mm. they don't know it's happened. So... You know, I mean, that's the dark side of hypnosis, but people can go that deep and, you know, that they don't even know what's going on. They completely lose control. Now, is this what happens with cults? Exactly. You know, whether you talk about ISIS cults, um, you know, it's exactly the same. Even, dare I say, some religions, you know, I, I mean, I am. I was brought up a Catholic. You go to church, you stand up, you kneel down, you pray, you chant the same things. If you, I am actually writing a book about how hmm. there is hypnosis in religions and, you know, how hypnosis features in all our lives. But yeah, if you, if you look at religions, you know, hmm. they're chanting the same thing in a comfortable place. You, you're sort of doing, you know, processes, sitting down, kneeling, closing your eyes, opening your eyes, sitting, things like that. It's, it's very similar to a show. Cults, you know, exactly the same thing. They take people that desire a belonging. They want to be a part of something. ISIS look for people that are lost because they want to give them something to belong to. And then once they feel that belonging, they are willing to do anything for that belonging. That really, and I think about, I'm I'm not trying to pick on that one, but five times the praying a day would probably help reinforce whatever the message is. I think that Scientologists Scientologists Mm. have what they call auditing. And I think you have to like literally check in every day Mm. and report your sins or your thoughts or things of that yeah. sort. Yeah. It's it's that is, you know, intense therapy is the same. I you know, if I was really trying to change somebody's habits, um that would that would be how I program their mind by telling them to do it, you know, so many times a day. Have you ever had to deal with any kind of I hate to say deprogramming, but there you go. Deprogramming. 99% of my work is deprogramming. <laughs> to be honest, it's unhypnotizing people from the damage they are doing by their own thoughts or the damage that has been done by their parents. You Mm. know, we all have that, 
we all kind of have two voices in our mm. heads. And one voice is, you know, you can do this, you know, the, the cheerleader. Mm -hmm. The other voice is, why are you doing that? You shouldn't be doing that. People are going to laugh at you. Oh, my God, no. Why did you say that? That negative voice that just chips away at you. When I speak to clients, sometimes that's their, their mum, their dad. It might be the school bully. And they carry this negative voice in their mind all the time that has such a negative effect on how they feel and then their behaviours. And so essentially, that's what I do all the time is unhypnotize people, take out bad programming mm, okay. and then reinforce the good. But I've not really, I once did have somebody that had, that believed she had been affected by some voodoo. Hmm. Um, she felt she had a spell on her. So we. I bet she was susceptible to hypnosis. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. Because that it, itself would almost prove that she was a very good candidate. Yeah, exactly. They, all voodoo is, is, is suggestibility. So, you know. I will work with a client. I once had a client who came for hypnosis and she was really holy. She, you know, she was really religious. So I said, right, okay. Like, and I styled the session more like a prayer mm. because that suits her frame of reference. And with the lady that had the, you know, she was like, somebody said that you might take this spell off me. It's like, oh God, here we go. I'm a witchcraft, you know, witch doctor now. It's like, right, okay. I don't mind burning some stage yeah. or, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's, but she, she wanted that kind of style. So I just tailored it a bit more to see what, you know, what fits her frame of reference. Okay. I had, um, I had a cult expert on Rick Allen Ross and he actually said a good comparison to a cult is an abusive relationship. Yeah. Do you know, I always, I had a client, a, a friend, sorry, who I once heard her on the phone and her boyfriend said something like, move that. And she didn't say anything. She just sort of accepted it. And then I remember speaking to her again and her boyfriend was like, it got to the point where her boyfriend was throwing stuff at her. And it was like, again, thin end of a wedge. Right. You you start by accepting that small, bad behavior. You mean he didn't do that on their first date? No. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, some people do. Oh, <laughs> well, okay. You, you, Usually that's the ending. Start, <laughs> yeah. But you start by accepting that, you know, that abrupt, you know, command or demand. And then the next time it's a little, it escalates a little bit more and a bit more and a bit more until you're in a situation you feel you can't get out of. And very often, if at the point where he said, move that, if she'd have just turned around and said, do you know what? I don't like you speaking to me like that. That might have been the end of it. Mm -hmm. That might not have gone any further because she set her boundaries, but she accepted it. So it escalated a bit more. And so very often when somebody is being bullied, they could get a different result with the way they handle it at the very beginning. That makes a lot of sense. Would you describe the process? Gaslighting? Yeah. 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 Gaslighters are not. Not nice people. I've had a a, a, re a relationship with somebody gaslighting me. It's not it's not a pleasant situation, and it it makes you question your own sort of you know mental health. I think as well. Now, out of curiosity, could it be? And I'm not trying to let anybody off the hook, but I'm just wondering: mm. Are there some people who do this? And they don't even necessarily know that they're doing it, you know, as in oh. gaslighting somebody else, like that's the way they were raised or something. And they repeat or echo that behavior. Yeah, absolutely. 
I mean, I am of the belief that nobody's inherently bad, you know. We, we've all had, you know, I've had damaging bad relationships. You don't sort of meet somebody and think, my God, she looks like somebody I could destroy her life. Nobody sets out with the bad intentions. Mm. And a lot of people aren't even aware of their bad behavior. And they're in, and even if it's pointed out to them, they can be in denial because they are too busy blaming the other person. They made me like that. So they don't take that responsibility on themselves and don't look at their own behaviors. But yeah, it's about self awareness. Um, you know, self awareness now dating is the new sexy. <laughs> That's actually fascinating. So you're saying that internalization can actually fix both the victim and the, um, bully or perpetrator if they internalize what they are doing they can correct yeah. it just by saying if, i'm doing if, this yeah if they are aware when when people come to me for coaching every coaching process it starts with self-awareness so we we have a conversation and we talk around lots of subjects and we drill down into subjects, which is not, you know, that's not going to happen with your friends. We really focus on one mm -hmm. subject and drill down deep with it. And what starts to come out is their behaviors. And they have realizations that they're like, oh, my God, I do this because I want to control the situation or I do this because, you, do you know what I mean? And they make sure. those realizations about themselves. And then the next step then, obviously, is self-regulation. So it's like, right, okay, I'm seeing what I'm doing to people now. How can I correct this? Is know? the setting what makes that effective? Because you know how there's always that scenario where you have a friend and you tell this friend, well, you know, such and such is going on and you may want to you know, look out for it. And you, you tell them a couple hundred times mm -hmm. and they completely blow you off. But then somebody else completely different says the exact same thing you did. And they're like, oh. wow, you know, I just realized. <laughs> and you're in the back room throwing furniture. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> is, you know, yeah. Is that it, kind of it? Again, I had a friend, similar situation. I was like, you need to do this. And then somebody else just said, you know, and I've been saying it to her for years. So when I, I read this book and you're like, <laughs> what? You know? But it's, again, it's, it, that's repetition. That's part of the hypnotic process. Re repetition of the same message. So, you know, they've heard you say it. The second time this, that you say it, it's falling on deaf ears. They're not accepting because they're like, mm. oh, God, this again. And they just delete the instruction. But then when somebody else says it, then it's fresh and new again. And it's it's more like, so had you not said it in the first place, when uh -huh. the second person said it, they might not be likely to take it on board. But then, you know, yeah. That's, okay, that's so it, it wasn't a waste of your time. No, it wasn't a waste of your time. <laughs> okay, well, thank you for <laughs> giving us hope. <laughs> yeah, as very frustrating as it is, it wasn't a waste of time. <laughs> wow. So now mindset, et cetera, it sounds mm -hmm. like you shifted gears in your career to kind of, I don't want to say adjust your own mindset, but maybe to do some exploration of yourself and what your potential was. Yeah. I mean, when, as I say, I found myself in a horrific situation, you know, losing my dad when I was quite young. And mm -hmm. then, you know, I ended up in an abusive relationship. I ended up being a teenage mom. And I felt I had absolutely nothing to give to the world um, and no hope, really. But doing the therapy started to sort of make me self-aware of how 
I was speaking to myself, how I was putting myself down. And it start that I started to ask myself better questions instead of why did this happen to me? Why, you know, it's like, how can I change this? How can I recover from this? How can I get better? How can I, you know, develop myself? How can I build my self-esteem? How can I build my confidence? Did you see yourself in patients? And as you were helping them, did some of that kind of reflect back? Oh, I see myself in, yeah, every every client that walks through the door, generally, I see a bit of it. You end up, I think when you study psychology, psychotherapy, you end up thinking you've got every kind of, you know, issue under oh. the sun you know you you're like hypochondriac doctor yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you start like oh i think i might have a split personality <laughs> yeah you and you do i mean some more than others others obviously but you do sort of see a little bit of yourself or you've been through something similar to a lot of clients but it's it's really difficult not to put your own stuff onto the client so because everybody deals with everything different how do you um control for that um trying to stay quite clean with questions until and it's difficult mixing what i do because coaching i think we do coaching is different in the uk coaching Mm -hmm. to uh, coaching to you guys tends to be training coaching to us is more of a counseling kind of situation where you're asking clean questions you're not you're not guiding or directing at all you're just really asking questions that's life coaching here yeah to to help that person understand themselves better and Mm -hmm. then i use hypnosis which is obviously the absolute opposite of that is the absolute direct 100 percent focus suggestion so Mm -hmm. i have to be really clean with the first stuff to get to get your stuff out and then if I decide to use hypnosis with somebody, then I will get their words. You know, what do you want? So what behaviors do you want to change here? What do you want? You know, how do you want to feel? How do you want to be? What new behaviors do you want? And use their language then to give as suggestion. It's interesting that you said clean questions because Mm -hmm. I was thinking about it. We are apt to say one thing and mean another and not realize we do that. But as the person asking the question, we have, of course, all of our own baggage, our own thoughts. And, oh, when they're saying this, they really mean that. And that may not be the case. So do you mitigate against that by having follow-up questions to kind of help guarantee, no, when they say they like cats, they like cats? Yes. It's like, um, for instance, when people come in with something, I my aim is to unravel whatever it is. So say like even a fear of needles. So I'll start discussing someone's fear of needles and they'll say, oh, you know, terrified of needles. So what is it that you're scared of? Well, Mm. you know, it's it's a needle going into your arm, but you've got a tattoo. Yeah, they were needles going to your arm, but that's not the same. Well, why isn't it the same? And I will ask question after question after question until they're like, it's not the pain. It's not the needle. It's not, and they're like, "Uh, I'm just scared of the being scared bit. And it's like, Okay, and then we get to the real core, but it's just literally Mm. question upon question upon question until we get to the real core of the issue. And then people have that realization. And very often, before I've even done any hypnosis, a lot of the work has already been done. That makes sense. And as you're asking the questions, are you kind of, in a weird way, exposing them to a, a metaphorical needle over and over and over? 
And so they're kind of desensitizing them. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I suppose I'd never thought about it like that. My, my aim is with something like that, I mean, it's not something I do all the time. I normally work with professionals, um, mm-hmm. you know, giving them more confidence, getting them over anxieties and fears. But I do, obviously, I've worked with people with um, fears of needles and various other things because it's all a form of anxiety. And when they first come to see me, generally, they are, they can't even imagine a needle. They don't want to imagine it or see it in their mind because them imagining it, as soon as you have a thought or an imagination, you release hormones into your nervous system. Right. Yeah. And that those hormones, if it's something like that, are going to be adrenaline and cortisol. So mm-hmm. as soon as you think about it, you're going to release those adrenaline, cortisol, and you're going to start to feel shaky. You're going to start to feel ill. So my aim is to make you think about it differently. So you're reframing. Reframing it, yeah. So it's not a scary thing. So I talk them out of what they thought. So in the end, they go, well, it's not the needle I'm scared of. It's the being scared bit. Right. It's that It's that feeling of just before then, because the needle doesn't really hurt. Do you know what I mean? Right. It's, it, it's not that big. It's the bit before where I'm like, God, I feel sick. I'm the panicking. anticipation. The bit, yeah. Is that's the bit that you're scared of. And once we separate that, then it's like, oh, it's a diff- it's different and it's easy. But yeah, as you say, when I'm talking about the needle all the time, then. I was just thinking every time they visualize it, they're getting that stress, but you're actually exposing them to a little bit. A little bit, yeah. a little bit. And you're kind of showing it, you know, slightly from the side. They're not looking directly at the needle. They're at the metaphorical yeah. needle. And that yeah. would maybe desensitize a little bit because it's just exactly. adding more information to the. Yeah. Because, I mean, immediately as I've done a session, if I can expose them to the thing. So, you know, if it's somebody scared of needles, I'll, if they were scared of even watching, I'll be like, right, can we watch somebody having blood taken on YouTube now? I want them Mm. to do it straight away. Um, With one client, I actually said, right, can we book for you to go get blood taken? And she did. She rung up straight away and booked to go get blood taken. Oh, nice. And I've actually got a video on my YouTube, I think. And I went with her and videoed it. One session, 20 minutes. And she went and had blood taken. And she'd been terrified of needles her whole life. Just such a mess about it. She'd missed so many checkups and all sorts because of this issue. And it is... it, every fear and anxiety can be gone just as quick as it was created within a second. Well, and that I think is what ties over to, um, I guess, life coaching. And I, I do know, and I want to be clear because you are a licensed therapist, that life coaching is not a licensed thing and you're not practicing mm-hmm. psychotherapy on people under the guise of life coaching. Mm-hmm. I always want to yes. put that out there. Here in the States, yes. it's it's a very big deal. And there's a war yeah, yeah. between psychotherapists and life coaches. And right. I think it's good to clarify. Yes. But there are some similarities. They may not be the same, but they kind of rhyme. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm an executive coach, leadership development coach. That's some mm-hmm. of my qualifications. And psychotherapist, counseling. Do you know right. what I mean? I've got all those qualifications. So everything I use is like a, jumbled up mixture of sure they reflect on each other yeah yeah so people come to me and they go i'm coming for hypnotherapy but i coach them i might Mm. counsel them a bit and you know i tend to just like right which which you know which tool am i getting out of my box well and when you're dealing with the executive coaching things like that okay Mm -hmm. we just talked about a needle phobia you probably i'm guessing are dealing with um 
self-imposed roadblocks or or patterns of behavior that they may have that could be holding them up from a breakthrough? Yeah. Um, you know, with I work with CEOs of companies and it's limiting beliefs, it's patterns of behaviors, it's um aiming them, you know, helping them to become more emotionally intelligent so they're a better leader. It's um coaching them through um, their processes, you know, when something goes wrong, we'll coach through it. What was a better way of handling that? How could have you done that differently and, and making their mind work differently? So it's, I deal with a whole host of different sort of professional issues that, that come to me. Fear of a very common one, fear of public speaking. That's, Mm. that's massive. You know, a lot of people have anxieties. Did you know there's a genetic reason behind that or, or a historical reason? I found this late, um, recently of why uh, it's fascinating. Okay. Well, I've got, I've got my own, I've got one, but I don't know. It might be the same or different. Oh, go ahead. And I'll, I'll tell you my, well, basically it's, um, you know, millions of years ago, if we spoke against the group, we would have been rejected by the group, outcast, and we would have died. Yep. Yeah. Is it the same? Quite literally, yes. If you, the only, (laughs) or very, very close, the only time you would speak in front of a group is if you were defending your life. Yeah. Yeah. So it would be like a trial or something else. So it would be very closely related to death. You've even added another layer to that. But uh, a lot of people... (laughs) Or, you know, a possibility yeah. to kill yourself. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Speak out early. Oh, I don't like blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I, that's fascinating. I just, when I found that out, I was like, oh, because I think everything does make sense ultimately. It may not be yeah, right. Cause it- but. Yeah, because it, it's like, I mean, when I speak to people about speaking, it's, it, you know, it's like, you can speak to me, you can, and I mean, I'm, you know, I tend to be, I have my own limiting beliefs on speaking, because I'm, mm. you know, I'm a motivational speaker now. And because I was a stage hypnotist, to me, the bigger the audience, the easier the show. Mm, mm-hmm. You know, if I go out to an audience of 10, I'm screwed, because I, I need 15 on stage. You know, sure. so if I do a talk to a small group, I feel nervous. Whereas stick me in front of 3000, fine. But I, I have a question about that. And I wanted to approach it because <laughs> your particular act, you went in front of just millions. However, you had what you called your USP. I would call it a prop. I don't, I don't know what would be the right <laughs> term, but you had princess. And yes. would it be fair to say that princess was an emotional support dog for you as you were ramping up to larger and larger <laughs> audiences? Can I swear? Is she balls? No, <laughs> she is. <laughs> She's not an emotional support. She's a nightmare. I'm her emotional support. <laughs> but that's fine too, was having her there as the focus helpful to you because for one, you know, if I stand out there and say, Hey, look at me, that's one thing. If I say, Hey, look at this really cool skipper key. I think it's not really because when I do, if you see my show in its entirety, because you see a a snippet, when I do a full two hour comedy show, the dog doesn't come out until the end. Oh, okay. Okay. So I I can't hide behind her. Mm. Um, So not really. I mean, I do feel more, I don't enjoy sort of seeing myself on camera. So I prefer it if they cut to the dog. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Um, well, yes, you see, I have a face way, for yes. radio. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but no, she's not, 
To be honest, she's a nightmare. She's an absolute nightmare. <laughs> you know, working with an animal is not an easy thing. You know, they, they don't... All of a sudden, she's tired. She's fed up with filming. She don't want to look in any camera. She don't want to stare at people because <laughs> she's been doing it all day. And now she's stood there and she's barking when I'm supposed to be, you know, when everyone's supposed to be quiet. So she is definitely not an emotional support dog. She's an <laughs> emotionally draining dog. <laughs> That's funny. How long have you been with Princess? Um, We got her. Wow. How long have we had her now? We've had her about... Let me think, 2013, 14, I got her, 2013, 14. So we've had her about seven years. Um, and I started using her probably about a year, 18 months after I got her. Mm, okay. And Skipper Keys live to be 20 plus quite She's often. She's a German spitch. Oh. Spitch. Spitz. <laughs> oh, really? I thought she was Skipper yes. Key. I Oops. don't even know what that is. <laughs> I heard you say that earlier and I thought. It's a, <laughs> a, a small dog. It's all black. Yeah, obviously. Short tail. Um, <laughs> Uh, Belgian, All right. and yeah. they're they're twins. <laughs> right. You'll have to look it up. It's funny. And I was yeah. going to say that my wife, when I was showing her the um, Britain's Got Talent bit with you, yeah. it, she didn't say, "Oh wow, hypnotist Simon Cowell." She goes, "Oh, Skibberky." <laughs> <laughs> she couldn't yeah. yeah, I normally get everybody's think she's a Pomeranian. Um that's that's the one I normally get. So that's that's new. I'll have to have a look. I've never heard of a skipper key. So yeah, I'm, they're actually ratters. They um right. they would live on boats and help keep the rats down. They were very, very popular right. in that environment. It's kind of my wife's favorite dog. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I see. Well now on your way up, we talked about it. So in 2015, you decided, okay, I want to take this show on the road. What it drove that? Wasn't, it wasn't really a decision. <laughs> it was a case of I'd just been sacked as oh. a field sales rep. I used to be a, you know, a rep sales out oh. of the field. And so whoa, whoa, we're bearing to... the lead. When did that happen? You were a therapist and then a, a sales I mean, rep. I've done therapy and hypnosis on the side of every job I've had, but I've had lots oh. of other jobs. I never did it full time. Really? I okay. was just yeah. It was just part time, you know, in, in America again, it's quite different to the UK. In America um, because of the way, you know, we've got the NHS, so nobody pays for any therapy uh. in the UK. So it's quite difficult to get a full-time business as gotcha. a therapist or something like that in the UK. So I did it on the side throughout, you know, all my different jobs that I've had. And mm. I was a field sales rep and I got the sack and I had my car for another month and I had another month's wage and I had nothing. And I'd literally, I'd, my brother had moved to Australia like 12 years before and we hadn't seen him for eight years since my mum had died and I'd promised mm. the kids we'd be going to Australia. And when I found Saka, I was like, oh my God, how am I going to tell the kids? This is going to be awful. So sure. I, I I went home, rung my friend Hugh that gave me the, you know, the hypnosis when I was, when I was pregnant. Mm -hmm. And he said, Christina, why don't you take over my show? You know, be a stage hypnotist. And I was like, oh. I cannot do that. No way. Not prayer. I cannot stand in front of people speaking on a stage. Not my bag. So he was like, okay. So the next day I went to the job center and I thought, I can't do this either. This is horrendous, you know. <laughs> I don't know whether you've got job centers in oh, Yeah, America, yeah, yeah. Unemployment office or Yeah, yeah. And it was just like, no way, this is not for me. So I thought, right, how hard can it be? I need to challenge these limiting beliefs. So I went straight home 
And I literally, he used to work the university circuit. So I rang the unit, I cobbled together a showreel that was his showreel, but I just edited him out. <laughs> and I rang around all the universities, said, look, this show's back on the road, except I'm doing it. And they booked it. And within about four weeks, I'd booked, I think it was six shows and they all paid me up front. I had eight grand in the bank. Nice. So I went off to I went off to Australia for a month with the kids. <laughs> and and what are you saying? Why the hell didn't I do this ten years ago? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Apart from the fact that he was still doing it then, so I couldn't steal his share. <laughs> no. Okay. How did you overcome it? Because it's very interesting. You had the fear of public speaking, things like that. Did mm -hmm. he help hypnotize you into? No, I did it myself. Okay. I recorded sessions myself because he was a stage hypnotist. He wasn't a therapist. Mm -hmm. Um. And he didn't have qualifications, but I did have qualifications in therapy by that point anyway. Ah, you know where so, I'm going now. Yeah, what's yeah. the so difference? I recorded my, what's the difference mm. what, between a hypnotherapist and a hypnotist? Yeah, I, th I think it's a very relevant question because the session you just said right there, they're different sessions. They're different kinds of things. So what would be... Yeah, I mean, you do get a lot of hypnotists stepping over into therapy, Mm -hmm. Um, but you generally get them sticking to things like weight loss or stopping smoking mm -hmm. because they can give a suggestion that's quite direct. You will stop smoking. It'll taste disgusting. You know, that kind of thing, aversion okay. kind of therapies, mm -hmm. you know, instead of eating cake, it'll taste awful and that kind of thing. It's quite easy, straightforward to do those things. Right. Um, a hypnotherapist has more therapy background they are doing therapy so they will deal you know they have more knowledge to be able to deal with something like anxiety or cd or fears and phobias so what so, would that session be like because I, I really would love a little you know in the details kind of example because a lot of people would assume session? they're the same of like a session uh, take a ocd type of there's a ocd um if so with OCD, you have to, again, you're working, doing a lot of therapy with the person. So you're looking at their mm -hmm. thought process that creates, you know, OCD is constantly, very often they're scanning, you know, and they they have a suggestion in their mind. They've given themselves a suggestion that if I touch this, you know, five times, mm -hmm. then I won't get bad luck. Everything will be okay. So then we have to change that suggestion. That's a suggestion they've hypnotized themselves. I was going to say, that's with. almost like um, like they've mind-controlled themselves or have a, exactly a horrible that. feedback loop. Yep, exactly that. So they have that suggestion. So then I have to change that suggestion to something that's healthier or, you know. So it's. Uh, I would imagine a hypnotist might have an idea how to do it, but he might end up doing more damage than, you know, than okay. good. So you uh, have to proper knowledge so that way i i could be presumptuous and i apologize but it sounds like you're not unraveling one thing you're trying to mitigate an entire condition which could have 50 60 hundreds different things and you're trying to kind of dig down to the whatever's causing the loop yes and and see if you can slow it down or redirect it yeah. slightly is that fair yeah. it's it's yeah it's i mean no one situation is the same to give you an example mm -hmm. um so it, it's really difficult i mean my main work is with anxieties you know and 
I work on changing people's thought processes so the adrenaline doesn't get released, the cortisol doesn't get released, so they don't get that panicky, sick, shaky feeling. So I delete the thoughts. We discuss the thoughts that create that chemical release. Mm. So we discuss that. I also teach them how, you know, why they're experiencing that anxiety. And then we do the hypnosis to delete the negative thoughts. So they are focusing on positive, productive thoughts because everybody with anxiety is an overthinker. They overthink every situation and they talk themselves into a false trauma. You know, everyone else calls the lift, waits for the lift and they're like, oh, what am I having for dinner? The person with anxiety is going, oh, my God, the lift's coming. Oh, my God, I'm going to get in. What if you get stuck? Oh, my God, I don't think I breathe. That's what they're doing. They're constantly hypnotizing themselves with their own thoughts. So we need to get those thoughts external again, instead of the thoughts being internal, like, can I feel this? Am I panicking? What's my breathing doing? Do I feel sick? We have to get it external again to what time is it? What am I having for dinner? Very cool. And then we won't release the adrenaline. We won't release the cortisol. We won't feel ill. We won't feel panicky and everything's fine. And then I'll use the, um, the uh, you know, I'll tell them to then go and call a lift, watch the lift doors open, watch them close, walk away. That's it for day one. The next day, call the lift, get in, get out again. That's it for the ne- that day. Then it might be go one floor. Mm-hmm. That's it. So there's no, you know, I don't push them through anything and make them do anything terrifying. How long do the effects last? And I ask because do you need, when you um, go through anything, be a therapeutic, like you mm-hmm. got get them to call a lift, is it then... Well, you need to take a lift um, every so often so you don't rebuild your nervousness again. Or It's interesting because people, if what happens with anxiety and things like that, you know, agoraphobia, aviophobia and everything, once somebody is like, right, this thing terrifies me, next is avoidance behavior. So they avoid it and it gets even worse. Mm -hmm. So, yes, they need to be doing that thing regularly. Okay, I wanted but to ask. Once, <laughs> once, once I teach somebody how, and they understand how their brain works mm-hmm. and how they cause it themselves, because they are causing it themselves, then they know how to stop causing it. And once they grasp it fully, you know, people go, how many sessions is it? Is it, you know, one, ten? And I always say probably one to three, mm-hmm. but that depends on how quickly you grasp it and you understand. Because once they understand how it works, and some, you know, I've had kids come in and they get it straight away and they're like, never feel anxious. I mean, everybody experiences anxiety. Well, kids are malleable. So they're not. still developing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, they, un- but they understand the process and it's easy for them to change. But yeah, some people get it really quickly and some people, it takes time for them to understand it or how, yeah, it's, it's quite difficult to explain without examples, but, you know, they have to understand the quality of their thoughts. Like, you know, somebody might come for one session, they feel better, but they're still having some low quality thoughts. So they might not be thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to get stuck in the lift. But they're still thinking that's going to be unpleasant, which is still low quality. It's not like this is going to be amazing. I'm going to be fine. Do you know what I mean? Which is high quality. Okay. Now, with the executive coaching, it's there's similarities there. Are you? I don't know if you're familiar with Landmark Forum or 
what um, has been described as be, have, do. And essentially the be, have, do is the, it's the idea of, we typically have the mindset of, if I have this, I can do this and I will be that. Yes. Yeah. And the argument on that is that that's actually backward. You should Mm -hmm. say, I am that. And if you are that, like in your mind, in your spirit, everything else, Mm -hmm. then things will start to come to you. It's a a mindset in there. Like you're a hypnotist, right? And in in your case. What you're, it sounds like you're talking about like affirmations. Kind of, I guess. Yeah. People ask me about affirmations all the time. And affirmations are essentially a hypnotic suggestion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the reason why you do affirmations on a morning and on an evening is because they are your natural theta states, your natural hypnotic Mm. states, yeah? So as you wake up in the morning, you're still in a state of hypnosis, so you repeat your affirmations, so they go straight into your subconscious mind. The problem is a lot of people come to me and go, affirmations don't work for me because they're, you know, they they can't afford their rent and they're going, I am a millionaire, I'm a millionaire, and that we have a critical sensor and it, it will reject right. BS. Right. So if you're giving an affirmation that you absolutely 100% know is not true, your critical sensor will throw it out along with the rest of the suggestions and it will never work. So then to so, use an example, in your case, you could at one point have the affirmation, I am the world's best hypnotist. Well, that actually... I would actu- have rejected that. Huh? <laughs> I would have rejected that. Would you, or somebody could say that, I am the best fill in the blank, but the world doesn't know it, but they know it. And as an example, I think of some of these, if you look at some of these giant stars or actors, very, very many of them, everyone around them, when you interview, they'll say there's something about them, mm. some sort of star quality, you know, or whatever it is. Mm. And a friend of mine, Chris Lockhead brought up, I think it's Maria Natrilova, which I can't say right, but the famous... <laughs> world champion tennis player yeah how the interviewer what was it like winning wimbledon and she's like yeah it was wonderful blah 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 but i've won it every year you know i've won it since i was three Mm, is that some of uh what you're talking about yeah it's i mean funnily enough somebody a client i had on friday said to me that they had written themselves a check like Jim Carrey, you know, mm-hmm, video mm-hmm. on YouTube yeah. for, I think she'd done hers for a hundred thousand pounds. She was like, it's in my purse. I was like, do you believe it? She was like, not at all. <laughs> and he's like, well, what's the point? He wrote it and he believed it. Do you know right. what I mean? He was like focused, fixated, absolutely 100% believed it. And what happens is when you, Everybody has different filters, mm-hmm. yeah? So you walk into my room now, um, a interior designer will look around the room and decide what, you know, they, they will notice the design. A plumber will notice the central heating. An mm-hmm. electrician will notice the electrics. Somebody that reads books will notice the books I've got on my shelf. Sure. Somebody else will notice my hairdo, my nails, my shoes. Everybody has different filters. Mm-hmm. And when you're sat in a restaurant and you're talking to somebody, somebody on the next stage, you know, they might go, podcast, you're like, what? Do you know what I mean? All of a sudden, your, sub- your subconscious mind scans everything it gets like four billion pieces of data a second sure you are constantly your superconscious is scanning all the time 
it heard every word at that table's conversation, every single word. It only flagged it up to you when it was something it believed you were interested in. Yeah? Yeah, absolutely. So to set your filters, that's how you do the affirmations. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? We need to give our subconscious mind a clear destination. We are, you know, programming the sat-nav of our mind. So we really have to give it clear directions of where we want it to go. So if I'm Um, a plumber and mm -hmm. I am going to be the greatest plumber in my city, Mm -hmm. I will start to think as if I am the greatest plumber in the city. And I I try to think in a manner that the greatest plumber in the city would think. Would think, yeah. It's like if somebody wants to lose weight, I'll think, right, imagine a thin person has just been landed, you know, the fittest Olympian, Olympic athlete has just been put in your body Mm -hmm. with your, you know, I don't have time for exercise, I've got to work all day. What would they do? They'd get up earlier. They'd do you know find I mean? a way. They'd find, they'd find a way. And mm-hmm. it's the same in, you know, whatever you do, you have to think like that person would think. You very often with people, you know, I'll get people that either want to get a promotion or they they feel like they're worthy of it. They're just not there yet. So it's like, right, take the level. Start being that person now. You know? Right. So Start if you acting. act like the manager and yes. are in a manner, then people actually just visualize you that See, you're obviously the next manager or, or, yeah, yeah. or team leader. You have, to, you have to upgrade yourself. You know, <laughs> I, I have clients, uh, one client in particular that's, you know, wanted to be a regional manager. He saw me three times and you know, it was over a couple of years, but mm-hmm. when he first came to see me, it was like, that is something I've got in my mind as like a distant, you know, dream. Within a year or so, he was there. It was like, and now I'm seeing him preparing himself, ready to step into that role. Because how will, you were a manager, you're now a regional manager, how will you dress differently? You know, how right. will you speak differently? How will you present differently? Think about regional managers that you've admired. Mm. You know, how are they different? What What are you going to do differently? How are you going to upgrade yourself and improve yourself and get into that mindset, those habits, those behaviors? And then start. Once you get comfortable, start acting like the next role. Yeah. And then you, every, you know, an affirmation every day I am becoming, it might not be, I am the best regional manager, sure, sure. but it's like every day I am becoming a regional manager, a greater, better in, you know, regional manager. It's think about what you can accept, mm-hmm. you know, the next, the next level that you're Which is possible. It is definitely possible. You're not going to, yeah. you're not saying I'm going to set the world record in sprinting. Which if you don't have the physical, there's no possible way, shape or anything. When when I started out as a hypnotist, I was like, right, I'm going to see how far I can get in this industry in a year. And within three years, I got labeled the world's best hypnotist. So Pretty impressive. Yeah. (laughs) And it's, it's, you know, within that first year, I'd been on, wow, 15 TV shows all over the world, China, all over. So it was, I just wanted to be the best I could possibly be. Well, that's perfect. And on that note, I want to wrap up (laughs) with the big story, which I'm sure you've told a thousand times, but I I would say that your appearance on um, Britain's Got Talent is probably maybe your biggest appearance. Um, 
Possibly. It's the one. It's up there. Yeah. Yeah. It's or in there. my neck of the yeah. woods. Yeah. <laughs> it would be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what um, happened? I've done CBS, the world's best. Now, is that um, CBS um, US? Yes. Okay. Okay. I was in Hollywood, filmed it last year in Hollywood. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Hypnotized Drew Barrymore, worked with RuPaul. Um, and I don't know what the other judge's name was. <laughs> I'll have to see if I can find it online. I think Some she's of this... a country and western. <laughs> it's on my channel anyway. There's, oh, okay. yeah. excellent, mm -hmm. excellent. I will look that up and link it. So what happened? Because you famously are the person who hypnotized a contrarian. Simon Cowell, yeah. <laughs> it was a crazy day. Um, basically, BGT got in touch. They'd seen a newspaper article that I'd done and they wanted to be on the sh me to be on the show. And I'd only successfully hypnotized, done two shows before that. So at first I said no, but they kept contacting me and saying, look, we really want you on the show. So I said, okay. Went along and, I mean, when I look back at it now, I'd die because I was terrible. I didn't, you know, I was such a rookie. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, well, you had to be but, nervous. And my wife did compliment. She said she has such poise. I can't believe that. So you came off strong, but you had to be terrified. Um, a I was little. Bits. Do you know what? I work with people just before I go on. So I meet the people just before I go on. I am really nervous about that because it's all about the people. Right. If they've got me, you know, a bunch of cretins, then I'm I'm like, oh my God, this could be terrible. Once mm. I'm on stage, I'm fine. I'm in the zone. I'm focused. I literally do I think back to when I was a kid and one of one of my friends once said to me, this is putting myself in the mindset, one of my friends, we were walking through a bunch of lads and she was like, right, head up, strut. And we like walked through this bunch of lads, you know, straighten our stuff. And, and that's what I go back to in my head. I'm like, right, let's get ready to strut, be sassy. And, you know, and I'm like, you know, I am a hypnotist like and that's what i say to myself i go on and i'm like yes yeah, speaking like this and then i walk off and i'm like oh my god <laughs> <laughs> back to ditzy me tripping over everything that's awesome <laughs> but yeah <laughs> on stage i'm like different persona so but yeah it was it was what you saw was very different to what happened. Yeah, so what happened? I walked, out, I walked out on stage and I asked for volunteers and Simon Cowell started, straight away was being mean as usual. And <laughs> he was saying, how do we know these volunteers are, you know, how do we know they haven't been pre-picked by you and everything? And so the crew then had to show him on a lap, on a iPad of me asking for volunteers in the queue outside because mm -hmm. they then had to sign consent, oh. make sure, you know, insurance and everything else. So the, I can't just pick people out of the audience. So they had to then show him a video of that process mm -hmm. happening. Okay. At this point, I am on the stage for five minutes. Everybody's already booing, hissing, because the fed up of seeing me and nothing's happening. The right. dog's peed off because she's just been <laughs> on a hot stage so she's just barking and wants to go home i can imagine eventually my people come up and i do the thing and the originals what got cut out was the original set of people were told that they'd forget the number seven the mm. next set of people thought that the original set of people were naked <laughs> So I finished doing the, you know, the number 10 and everything. And then I, because I was a rookie, I forgot to remove suggestions. I was wondering so I, about that. 
So I sent them all off backstage and I went to be judged and I got four yeses. And then Simon Cowell started saying whether he'd come up and everything. And they told me that if anybody comes up, it would be James Corden. So Mm. I was like, that's cool. And then Simon Cowell stood up and I just thought, okay, my career's over before it even starts. (laughs) So he comes up and he was just like, he was stood there going, nothing's happening. And I didn't know whether he was talking to me Mm-hmm. or whether everybody could hear him because they sometimes switch different mics off. Oh, okay. So I said, he said, nothing's happening. So I said, it's your teeth. You're dazzling her, like, just as a joke. So he went, oh, <laughs> sorry, and closed his mouth. And then he just went, it's not working, and walked off. And I just thought, oh, shit, that was awkward. <laughs> um, and then he, he, you know, they gave me four yeses. I went off stage. And as soon as I worked off stage, my agent came running up, and he went, um, everybody's been wanting to attack Ant and Deck. Ant and Deck are the co-hosts. Mm-hmm. You know, the people that stand at the side of the yeah. stage. Because they thought they were naked. Because I hadn't removed the suggestion. So they were all shouting and screaming, <laughs> saying, what the hell's going on? You, this, it, My kids watch this show. Why are you naked? <laughs> Ant and Deck, being funny, were jumping up and down and wiggling. And they were like, they had to be separated. Did they think that they were naked? So, yeah. Themselves? In, and they were displayed? No, no, no. And, and okay. they, they, they'd forgotten the number seven. Okay, okay. So it was absolute chaos. So they had to bring security <laughs> in and split them up. Oh, so as soon as I came out, I was like, I was hearing about this. And I was like, right, I need to go remove this suggestion. And Anna and Deck were like, can you remove it? We can't count. And I was like, oh, God, that was terrible. <laughs> I went to do that. And one of the main producers came up and said, we need you back on stage, Simon Cowell's collapse. And at that point, like the blood drained out of me because I just thought, <laughs> oh shit, I've, do you know what I mean? I've killed Simon Cowell. And then she went, bring the dog. So I was like, okay, got the dog. And it was like, I walked back out on stage. And what you don't hear is during my whole act, everybody was booing, hissing. Mm. They were shouting off, 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 because... I'd been on stage for so long and they're all mm. drunk, the audience. They've been there the whole day. They're all drunk. My oh. daughter was in the audience. She was only about 10 at the time. She was bawling her eyes out because they were all being horrible to me. Mm. So I went back on stage to absolute rapturous applause. The, you know, the bloody audience really did like have a split personality. You turned them. And I was just like, what the hell is this circus? Get me out of here. So, but I went down and I counted him out and he woke up and everybody asks me, was that a, you know, was it a setup? I don't know. I don't know. You know, it is possible Hmm. that at the time, it's difficult to hypnotize a host or a judge because mm-hmm. they don't want to relinquish control to me, which they have to do. Makes sense. They want to stay in control. So he might have been in control. And then when he got back to his desk, relaxed and. I hate to say off. it was, I think it was the dog too, because I've watched a little, he loves the dog stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and I yeah. think that he, if it was just you, he might have been even less susceptible. But I, I swear, our princess may have been a factor because he really yeah, seems to yeah. 
be deeply into yeah. it. Now, how did he react after when he was He awakened? was just like, oh, thank you so much. And I mean, the other judges were making fun of him. They said that he'd been sleep, asleep 10 years and <laughs> that his trousers had come back, you know, up to his boobs had come back in fashion and oh, God. stuff like that. And he was just, he was really nice. He took my number and everything and he was, he was really nice. Um, and wow. then for the rest, I wasn't, I didn't see it, but then supposedly for the rest of the day with all the other acts, he was just really nice to everybody. <laughs> so who knows? <laughs> well, fantastic. And that's a perfect note to end up on. She is the one who made Simon Cowell nice. Yeah. But the effects don't last for too long. <laughs> don't be sending me your husbands and your wives. <laughs> Please make them nice. Oh, goodness. So people can learn more about you at ChristinaLennon.co.uk. And that's Christina yes. with all Y's. Yes. And a K. K. K and all Y's. But if they want to find me, search HypnoDog. That you, <laughs> if you type in HypnoDog, you will get to me. <laughs> and on your site, you have a course i believe a take back methodology or take back control yeah, take back control it's all about taking back control of your mind your thoughts your behaviors your actions yep well fantastic and this has been wonderful thank you so much Good. for coming on thank you thank you for having me thanks for listening and if you like what you heard please consider subscribing for free and i mean for free it is always free there's no billing, anything else. You can subscribe in your player of choice, which is probably right in your hands. Or you can go to unstructuredpod.com. And there are plenty of links there. Thank you so much. And in the spirit of sharing, here's a couple more shows you may want to check out. Laughter, tears, celebrities, newsmakers, anecdotes, and recipes. Wait, I was wrong. They don't do recipes. You can't hear food. Join host Randall Kenneth Jones, a man who is not the original cowboy in the village people, and announcer Susan C. Bennett, a woman who is the original voice of Siri, every week on Jones.show, a podcast so accessible its name is a web address, www.jones.show. Hi, this is Kara Mayer Robinson, and I host Really Famous. I interview A-list celebrities. I dive deep because I used to be a therapist. This is what Tim Gunn said. I just have this antipathy for the judges. I can't stand being in the same room with them. Tim Daly. If you're not working in LA and you're an actor, there's no worse place to be. Michael Rappaport. I changed schools every year from the third grade to the 12th grade. Disruptive was my thing. Chaz Palminteri. I knew something was going on. I said, I got to talk to somebody. It's really famous. It's like eavesdropping on a therapy session.